Welcome to another episode of our Pixel Drone Show, the podcast where we talk to industry professionals about how they use drones in their day-to-day work. Today, uh, your hosts are Kara Murphy, Greg Reverdio, and myself, Hi Gastelone. If you're new to the show, then please be sure to subscribe and like our channel and share it with friends and family. Uh, as we grow the audience, it helps us to uh, to make the show even better and more popular. Today's guest is Trevor Lyons, the chief drone pilot from CBC News in Canada. Trevor has 25 years of uh, experience in videography and photography and has been working on projects uh, related to Discovery Channel, Sochi Olympics, CBC, uh, Radio Canada and others. He's a certified drone pilot and we'd love to talk to him and kind of pick his brain and get some of his experience and share that with with our audience. Uh, Welcome to the show, Trevor. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's start with the uh, first question right away. Can you take us back to the beginning and uh, and tell us a little bit about when you started flying drones and what your first drone was and how you kind of grew from there to where you are currently in your current position? For sure. Uh, I think like uh, a lot of people, I had a little bit of interest in RC cars and trucks and you know building those and uh, a little bit. I, I enjoy the techie side of it and like the, the RF and the building and the soldering. And uh, the first drone I got is actually uh, that F-550 on the wall behind me, which doesn't fly anymore. Um, and funny story about that F-550 is I got it, I think, in about 2012. And I ordered it online and I didn't know anything about drones at the time. Uh, There were no drone laws in Canada at the time. I didn't even know who DJI was at the time, which seems ridiculous now. Um, But when I got that delivered to my front door, it got the, it's, it's branded DJI, but it came in a Ziploc bag wrapped in duct tape. So I'm not sure where that drone actually came from and if it's actually a DJI product, Uh, but that was my first drone. And, uh, Let's just say that that drone uh, helped me learn how to fly. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, so you work as the chief drone pilot for CBC News. Can you tell us what your responsibilities are in that role? So uh, CBC News, for those that don't know, is uh, Canada's national public broadcaster. Um so uh, news gathering is super important uh, at the CBC. It's one of our main uh, main jobs. Um, initially, my job at first was to understand drone laws, uh, make sure that we were following those laws, uh, figure out how drones were going to integrate into journalism, and how would we use this new tool in news gathering. Um, as everywhere around the world, as regulations have evolved, as the technology has evolved, my job has sort of transitioned into uh, sort of being a reference for other pilots and looking after uh, training, overseeing, making sure that we're following uh, the regulatory process and helping out uh, all of our other pilots uh, meet the same standard. So you said you're in charge of training the drone pilots. Can you tell us a little bit of how that works? Uh, how many pilots do you have? What kind of drone training program are you going through to get them uh, ready to go? So the the pandemic has had an odd effect on uh, drone operations at CBC um, because for so long, uh, we were hesitant or couldn't. And depending on the jurisdiction across Canada, the, the COVID rules were different. So as as a videographer, normally my job would be to go and visit someone and do an interview with them in their house or in their place of business. 
And during COVID, that wasn't possible. So there was a lot of interviews done like we're talking now over Skype or over Google Chat or however, over Zoom. Um, so videographers were less busy. So managers saw that their team was less busy. So they filled that with drone training in some parts. So we've during the pandemic, we've probably doubled the amount of pilots that we have at CBC. We're up to uh, 30 pilots across the country now. And I would say off the top of my head, another dozen that are currently in training. Uh, so that's from, from coast to coast. Uh, the, the fleet has expanded quite a bit. Uh, so that makes my job great. I've got a lot of new people uh, with relatively low experience. So that makes my job fun because I get lots of phone calls and questions. And how do you do this? What do I do in this circumstance? Uh, I'm, that's My job is to help them out and get that done. And the drone training is different in Canada. So can you walk us through, most of our uh, viewers are from the U.S. I know you guys have a flying component uh, to it as well. So I'm sure that has made things a little bit more difficult when it comes to uh, COVID and, and everything. And, and, and so walk us through kind of the differences with uh, in, the, um, in Canada. So our licensing system is uh, broken into two parts. In Canada, you can get either a basic license or an advanced license. Now, a basic license is uh, the, the bar is relatively low uh, from a difficulty point of view in writing the exam, um, but uh, you can only fly in class G airspace. So really for the hobbyist who just wants to uh, have uh, uh, any kind of drone over 250 grams, if you wanna fly that in class G airspace, you need to go and uh, get your basic license. Now at the CBC, all of our pilots are ed, have our, our advanced license, and that's there's a little bit more entailed in getting your advanced license in Canada. There's uh, an online study component that is uh, that we do at CBC. There's a third party that we did, that does some online training for that. Then you write your online exam, you pass that, and then you have to go do an in-person flight review with a certified instructor. So you show up. You have to show up with procedures, risk assessments, flight plan, uh, lots of documentation about your flight, registration. Um, you show that to the reviewer, and then you do a 15-minute flight, and the flight reviewer will ask you to do certain things. Uh, they'll ask you to guess your distance, guess how high you are without looking at your telemetry. They'll ask you, they'll just make sure that you can control the drone, that you can take off and land without causing any problems. Um, but most of it is to check out, to, to know that you understand where you are, what airspace you're in, and who to call in case of emergency. That's uh, basically what it comes down to. Wow, that's that's um, that's actually really interesting. I think there's been a lot of discussions in the U.S. about uh, similar training and why we don't have a flying component. Uh, what kind of drones do you guys use for training purposes? I would say the drones uh, that we use at the CBC, I would say 90% of them, maybe even higher, are DJI products. Uh, the Mavic 2 Pro is probably the the workhorse that we have that we use the most right now. Uh, we have a bunch of Inspire 2s in probably one in every region, so that, that is there for higher end photography and videography, where you have prime lenses and you can uh, take that out uh, and get uh, different types of shots. Uh, but we also have a lot of Mavic Minis for news that's happening right away or stuff where you don't have time to make a flight plan or get everything in order sometimes using that sub 250 uh, drone that in canada falls underneath the regulatory there's like a regulatory bar where 
under 250, there's a lot less regula regu uh, regulations. Uh, so mostly DJI products. And I would say in training, when people are new, probably the Mini and the Mavic 2 Pro. And then as people get more experience, they can uh, have access to a, an Inspire 2. And then in the last year, I'd say we've kind of, I've kind of gotten into uh, FPV and what that can bring uh, to to us as broadcasters and news gathering. Um, and that's sort of where we're at now. So I've got uh, maybe four or five FPVs that we're testing out. Wow, that's that's cool. Actually, I don't think I've seen anyone um, in the news industry in the US using FPV yet, which I think is, uh, that's cool. It's a completely different perspective. So I'm excited to hear that. So what are some of the most important skills um, a remote pilot could acquire? Uh, I think patience uh, and the ability to stay calm when everything is going crazy around you. Um, and not just, I guess, the experience in being a news photographer maybe helps in that because there's this... Uh, in the news business, there's this pressure of of going live and getting the story edited just before six o'clock, and you know producing under deadlines and being able. There's, I think, that's something that you can practice. That we're uh, working under pressure or uh, taking a moment to realize that okay, yes, there's a deadline, but if I stay calm and if I go through my regular process, everything's going to be fine. Um, making this good decisions under pressure translates into being a drone pilot, and being able to look at what is in front of you and assessing the situation um, and deciding, yes, I can do this or no, it's not worth it. Um, and I, I think uh, many people don't realize that being a drone pilot, you sort of have to practice risk management. And uh, part of the training process is risk management and understanding, you know, risk versus reward and, you know, uh, risk mitigation, and so not not avoiding risk and not doing something that is risky, uh, not jumping over a rule. So I, I always hesitate by say by saying something like find your way around a rule, but putting real mitigation in place that allows you to safely get around a rule is probably a better way to put that. So I can't fly over people, but I can yes. put people in the crowd and get those people to separate the crowd so that I can fly in this area and be sure that there's no one underneath my drone. So spotters are a big thing at CBC and communication with spotters. So um, I, I think teaching people that they already know about risk management and how to bring that into being a drone pilot is probably one of the bigger things that we do. That's oh, awesome. uh, that's really interesting. that's really interesting um, that you use like a team of people to to make sure that uh, the situation is safe. I heard you mention that um, you guys pretty much fly all DJI drones in in Canada. Do you have the same fear as we have here in the United States about Chinese made drones and data being leaked to Chinese government and all those kind of things, or is that is that so political just in the US and is not so much an issue in Canada? I, I have heard that talked about. Um, I'm just wondering if maybe we don't have anything that that's that's that interesting enough for China that we don't worry about it as much. I wonder if maybe that's part of the the problem. <laughs> no, uh, I, I joke a little bit, but yeah, we've heard it. And uh, as as a public broadcaster, we are technically owned by the government. It's just that the government doesn't have any d influence in our day to day operations. So um, yes, it's something that is. On the table, it's been mentioned in meetings, um, but nothing is happening with it yet. 
So um, if there's a news event happening um, as a news organization, can you simply show up at the location and throw your drone up in the air? Or do you have a checklist to make sure that everything is safely in place before you can launch? Yes, we have a checklist. Um, and the answer is uh, typically it depends. In 2019, the rules and the regulations changed in Canada. So pre-2019, the answer to that question was absolutely not. Uh, you had to get a flight plan in order. You had to ask permission from Nav Canada, which is the uh, uh, air navigation service provider for controlled airspace. Um, so basically, the rules were the same for me with a drone as they were for uh, a jumbo jet or a Cessna. If I wanted to enter controlled airspace, I was an aircraft and I needed permission. And that permission process took a certain amount of time, so I couldn't just show up at a news event and throw a drone up in the air. Just recently, uh, Nav Canada has developed uh, an application and a web portal called NavDrone, and uh, that allows me to have a profile set up online as a pilot with all my drones and all my licenses, and I can go in, quickly draw a map, and there'll be certain thresholds in controlled airspace. So if you're on approach, uh, say a mile out, you're not going to get automatic permission to fly that. But if you're, say, off 90 degrees to the side of the airport and you're not over the circuit, then you're probably going to get an automatic approval if you stay under, say, 300 feet. And if you're a little closer, maybe it's 200 feet. So it's a really great system that has come in recently that has allowed us as a news organization to very reduce by an extreme amount our ability to deploy quickly, which is uh, great for us. Is that approval immediate? You said, are you getting a text message? That's how it works in the US. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an email that we get back. So as long as you meet certain criteria, you you know before you hit request whether you're going to get an automatic approval or not, which is great because it allows you to adjust your request to meet the parameters that will get you an automatic approval. Yeah. And then if you needed to fly, let's say, really close to an airport at a much lower, uh, al a much higher altitude, um, how long does that typically take? Do you have to submit that to the, the equivalent of the FAA in Canada? Uh, so the equivalent of the FAA in Canada is Transport Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, we... So my license is through Transport Canada, the regulator, but all of my interaction in airspace is a separate company, which is Nav Canada. And they look after, they're like the, the, the people in the control tower, they look after controlled airspace. So mm -hmm. all of my requests for controlled airspace are through uh, the ANSP. So if I have a really high risk operation, uh, I can still do it, but I'm not gonna get an automatic approval. I'm gonna have to go through a process. A person, an expert is gonna look at that and they're going to decide whether it's safe or not. And then there's a bit of a back and forth there. So there's there's nothing we can't do. It's just uh, the improvement that they've made is that the high-risk operations, they take longer, and the low-risk operations you can do right away, which is great for us. Yeah, risk-based risk -base management of airspace is, uh, is the way to go. I agree. Yeah. So do you see smaller drones like DJI's Mini and the forthcoming Hotel Nano? I think it's being released at the end of October. Do you see those playing a pertinent role in news gathering going forward? Absolutely, and absolutely not. So uh, mm -hmm. because we're in Canada, and uh, 
you know, the weather is different. Like if Vancouver, absolutely, those are going to play an important role, um, except when it rains. And it rains all the time in Vancouver and Seattle, right? Uh, in Winnipeg, where I am in the middle of the country, absolutely in the summertime. But the manufacturer usually rates those drones at uh, a minimum temperature of zero degrees Celsius. So for four or five months of the year, I would be in the winter, I'm operating out of the manufacturer's specs for that drone. So it stays in my basement or in the back of my car for the entire winter. Uh, Toronto and Montreal are a bit warmer, maybe only two or three months of the year, those don't get used. So it's different across the country. But yes, those those smaller drones that are sub 250 are fantastic tools. Um, we're maybe not using them for our news magazine shows that have a higher production value. Uh, but for daily news, absolutely, those are fantastic tools. But it all goes back to, at, you know, and as technology advances and improves, maybe in a year, some of those sub 250s will be rated for minus 10 degrees Celsius. Or uh, the, the Inspire 2 is rated for minus 20. And that's why we have a fleet of Inspire 2s is because we need to operate all year. And that uh, that technology allows us to do that. Interesting. In the United States, if you fly recreationally with a sub 250 gram drone, you don't have to register the drone. As soon as you fly professionally, you have to register with the FAA still. Can you quickly explain how the rules are or what the rules are for sub 250 drones in Canada? And are they the same for professional as well as recreational pilots? So in Canada, uh, when they changed the rules in 2019, uh, there was no longer a distinction between commercial use and recreational use. It was all risk-based. So it doesn't matter why you're flying. It just matters where you're flying and what the risk is for that flight. An advanced pilot, which means I have, uh, uh, theoretically, I have a deeper knowledge of the regulations. And if I, uh, there's a second part of that to the drone you use in Canada needs to meet a certain standard in order to fly in certain areas. So I can use any drone I want in class G airspace. If I want to fly in controlled airspace, I need to be an advanced pilot and I need to have a drone that the manufacturer has rated as acceptable for controlled airspace. And even more than that, if I want to fly over people, the manufacturer has to state that that drone is safe to fly over people. So there's sort of the two sides of the risk. There's the education of the pilot and the experience, and there's the tool that you're using. Does that drone qualify for that type of operation um i'm sorry i forget the second part of your question second part of my question was whether the, whether it's the same for professional recreational pilots but i think you pretty much already answered oh, right. that. it sounds like the rules in in canada are more risk-based and and also more advanced i would argue than what we have here in the united states with uh, the faa yeah i think um there was the, the 250 uh gram rule too so in canada if your drone is uh under 250 grams the new regulations that came into place don't apply to that. So between 250 grams and 25 kilograms is considered a small uh, remotely piloted aircraft, a small RPA. Mm -hmm. Under 250 is a micro RPA. So micro RPAs are, I wouldn't say they're unregulated, but they're much less regulated. And as long as you're not causing a problem or causing aviation safety uh, or causing risk to bystanders, you can pretty much fly wherever you want. Is that the same for, let's say, Americans? If, if I was going to go to the Niagara Falls and I want to uh, hop over the border, be in Canada, bring a Mavic uh, or a Mini 2, can I, can I safely fly that there? Uh, let's say away from the waterfalls, obviously, but just with a, a sub-250 gram drone? I hesitate to answer that question specifically. Uh, I th specifically, Niagara Falls, 
uh, I live a long way from Niagara Falls, but I think Niagara Falls is controlled, uh, or sorry, uh, class F restricted airspace. So I don't mm-hmm. think you can fly. I don't think any aircraft, including sub two fifties can fly in Niagara Falls. Uh, but if we take that same example and put it in class G airspace, I don't know if foreign operators can operate any size drone in airspace in Canada. I, I know for sure you couldn't operate a a plus two fifty gram drone. I honestly don't know the answer for a sub two fifty. Yeah, I think there there are some rules to to fly as a U.S. citizen in Canada, and you get a there is no reciprocity per se, but there is some paperwork no. that you have to fill out. It's yeah, it's it's pretty stringent actually, and same for people coming in the U.S. actually. Uh, and actually, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, that uh, foreign operators operating in Canada with over 250 gram drones need to apply for what is called a, an SFOC, a Special Flight Operations Certificate, which is basically a, a permit to operate outside of the rules for a specific amount of time. Uh, this this reciprocity of uh, of licensing is something that's really important for us because we have bureaus in. Washington, in London, in Russia, in Moscow. So how do our pilots safely, legally, and stay insured while they operate in different countries uh, around the world? Um, and it's it's tough to be an expert in the rules of all the drone laws in every different region of the world. So that's, that's something that's slow and it's difficult to, to deal with from an insurance point of view, but it's something we're working on right now. Yeah, when you see how long it took in the U, well, in the world to get standards with ICAO for many aircraft pilots, uh, it's going to be a while before we see anything. Everybody's still trying to figure figure this out on the UAS side, um, and yeah. like you said, it's very difficult to keep track of everything going on in every country. Um, I, I did have a question from a from a journalist standpoint: What does the drone bring to you? What what kind of different perspective? How does this enhance what you do as a journalist? So I would say uh, when drones were relatively new, like uh, when we were in the the Phantom era and before like the Mavics came in, it was, and the Inspire 1 era, we were in this this moment in time where all of a sudden we had access to a tool that previously would have been a helicopter with a gimbal on it. And it would have been like just ridiculous costs. And you would never get that tool in a local budget. So what it gave to us at the beginning was access to, you know, not only access to it, but regional stations had access to this fantastic tool for great shots. And I think now with the advance in technology and the drop in prices in drones and the ease of access to airspace now, um, drones and drone visuals have almost become, instead of a nice to have, it's almost like a baseline. I think people almost expect it now, um, which is why we're doing so much training because pretty much any YouTube video you see, uh, any video production that is done, there's probably going to be a drone shot in it now. And it's, it's almost like if you don't have it, you're behind the times. Yeah. Is there a trend that you see in current drones that are either announced or that are around the corner that you're excited about from a from a news perspective that's going to make your job easier? What I'm excited about right now is uh, FPV, and 
in the same way that drones initially brought like that beautiful wide shot, that beautiful transition, that way to like bring the viewing public to your story and say, look, this is what we're trying to, this is the story we're telling you. This is the, the, the geographic region we're talking about. Uh, now with FPV, it's almost the opposite. You can get super, super close and uh, the types of stories are different. So all those like sports stories, uh, art stories, uh, you know, I did a shoot not too long ago in a sculpture garden, uh, which is not breaking news, but we just did this tour and it was COVID. So people couldn't go out and enjoy the parks and visit things. So I did this FPV flight around the sculpture garden and just slowly flew around these sculptures. And, and it was super popular online because people just got to see what was uh, what was happening outside. So stuff like that and uses that we didn't think were possible before, I think is what we're looking to next in drones. Wow, that's that's exciting. I'm excited to see that kind of stuff. So we saw your FPV drone um, video of the CBC offices. Do you see a trend in FPV drones being used to um, in the news or to cover the news um, going forward? I, I think so. Um, it's the the difficulty with that. The, the shot itself is amazing and fantastic, and with the, the view that it gives, it, it brings the viewer like right on board. And uh, you can get as a pilot, you you have like so much confidence in flying close to things because you can see them so well, especially inside where you don't have to worry about aviation safety. Right. Um, the difficulty with FPV right now is that it's still sort of at the DIY level of production. Like you you can buy a frame and you can buy a flight controller and you can solder it and put it together yourself and you can change motors. And the, while that's great from having control over what you want to buy and, and building something specific to your needs, then that drone doesn't have a manufacturer. So there's no recommendations from the manufacturer. So how do I get insured for that drone? So how how safe is that to fly over people? There, there's no, because I'm sort of building it at home, there's no standard for that drone. So th I think that's the hiccup or the hurdle right now. Uh, and DJI has obviously come out with their FPV drone, but it's sort of a hybrid drone. Um, but at least it comes with certain certifications from a manufacturer that has done research, right? So we're sort of at that point with FPV right now where the shots are amazing and new and fantastic. And we've all seen like the bowling alley shot and we've all seen uh, like those types of like so many car commercials now that you see online have a diving FPV shot in them. Um, so we're kind of at that, you know, cine lifters are a bit different. They're heavy duty drones and on a closed set. So the regulations are maybe a bit different, but how do I use that in a daily news point of view, right? So we're, we're not quite there yet. So we're, we're seeing the usage a little bit. And the other hurdle is the amount of time it takes to get, I won't even say good at it, but just proficient enough to get a shot. Um, it's probably another good side of COVID was I spent a lot of time on a simulator in my basement because there was nothing else to do. But like how many how many pilots are going how many drone pilots are going to spend x number of hours a hundred hours practicing um, that type of stuff like it, it it's great and it's fun and it's an amazing experience to fly it and you get great mm -hmm. shots but there's a lot of training that goes into getting those types of shots oh yeah I mean I uh, reviewed the FPV drone from DJI for DP review and the first time I switched it into manual mode which they purposely make it 
difficult to do it in the goggles because I don't just want people automatically doing it on the remote. I crashed it. So I get where you're coming from. It is yeah. something you have to work in this uh, simulator or the software for a few months before you even touch it in real life. And I would imagine that not um, many pilots have that patience or that dedication or even that additional courage. And I find when you are flying uh, in manual mode or really um, in aggro mode, I should say, uh, more technically, it's much different because you're constantly maneuvering the joysticks. Whereas if you're just flying drones regularly, you're maneuvering here and there, but it's, it's a totally different experience. So I believe what you're saying. It it really is. And it's uh, when you're working with a DJI product and you finish your shot, you can sort of let go of the sticks and discuss with your observer and say, what do we do next? And your drone just sort of hovers there and waits for you. Whereas in FPV, you're flying 100% of the time and you don't stop until it's on the ground and then you talk about things. Then you change batteries and do it again. So let's talk about this uh, this shot that you guys did in your offices. I'm sure that took a lot of coordination, a lot of different tries. Can you walk us through maybe some of the things that you've learned or some of the things that you had to go through to make this happen? Yeah, for sure. It was a, an amazing experience. Um, our team, uh, a team of three of us that sort of worked on the shot, uh, and probably the most time invested in that shot was just finding a spot in the building where we had RF penetration from the beginning of the shot to the end of the shot. Mm -hmm. And like we went from outside on the main floor to the opposite end of the building on the 10th floor. So we tried sitting on the seventh floor. We tried sitting on the main floor. We tried, we, we moved around and we do test flights. And then once we kind of found a spot, um, we broke the shot down into three areas. And then I would just practice those areas. But because this was all new, we had to wait till the, uh, the building was empty at night. So all of our practice uh, runs were overnight when there was nobody in the building. So no risk of hitting anybody. Um, and it was kind of weird to be in this huge, the huge CBC building when it was empty at night with this drone making crazy noise through the atrium. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we broke it into, into, into those three different shots. And then once we were confident with uh, our position and the RF, um, when we did a rehearsal for the election show, that's when we did it from beginning to end. And uh, I think we ended up doing two separate runs and uh that was it was one of those runs we did two two or three separate runs before we got uh, got the shot finished that's really cool yeah it wasn't uh, it was an awesome video we'll uh, we'll try to see if we can edit it into the the podcast i think it's definitely worthwhile for people uh, to watch it uh, i want to shift gears a little bit and um talk about some moments where drones uh were prominently in the news and i remember uh, back in 2015 there was a skier i think his name is marshall hirscher in uh, he was skiing a, a slalom race in italy and as he's clearing one of the gates you see this huge drone crashing right behind him and i remember that moment as being like oh wow that this is what, what, what also can happen uh, with drones. Do you know any other highlights where you think, okay, so within the news gathering or using drones to, to, um, to report on news, where drones kind of had a, um, an important or breakthrough moment? Hmm. I do remember seeing that, uh, that skiing incident because I'm sure much like you guys, uh, whenever drone stuff happens or is online, everybody sends it to the drone person they know, right? So. Yeah. 
uh, I saw that uh, a whole bunch of times. And what stuck with me from that event specifically was, uh, I forget what the event was, but it was like a, a World Cup or Olympics or it was a high-end event, right? Yeah. So that that ev- what stuck with me was that event has resources and that's not just somebody who went to Best Buy or Walmart and bought a drone and doesn't know what they're doing. That's a team of people who know what they're doing. They probably have policies and procedures and risk assessments just like we do, and that still happened to them. So it was it was that a moment of that reminder that you know just because you do everything right doesn't mean it's going to end up that way. There's there's still risk involved. So um, when things like that happen, uh, and we've all had close calls or accident events, um, it's a reminder that that's why we have our procedures and our risk assessments because these things will happen eventually. So if your drone is going to fall, make sure it falls where there's no people underneath it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting because when you talk to other people in the drone industry, of course, we all know what drones are and we were very knowledgeable about it. When I talk to, let's say, other people within friends or family, uh, they are far less familiar with drones. And I think it's those, those moments like that drone crashing behind the skier or how drones were used when the, the Notre Dame uh, Cathedral in Paris was on fire. It's when drones kind of make their way into the more mainstream or more public uh, field of view, if you will. Um, I was wondering if, if you know of any other moments that kind of stuck with you over time, well, like, oh, this is one of those things where drones became super prominent all of a sudden. I guess like timing is everything, right? And I think um, I had just sort of found out or I had just been introduced to FPV and I'd seen a couple of FPV races and it's so different than DJI drones that, yeah, I saw it and, oh my God, those guys are, are really talented pilots but I'm never going to use that in the news gathering business. And then um, was it the explosion in Istanbul happened and somebody slowly flew an FPV drone through the devastation of that explosion. And that sort of triggered something for me that was like, Oh, you don't have to be racing at 80 miles an hour through a gate. You can use that same technology to slowly go through um, a disaster area and, you know, you, you can't physically yeah. go there uh, to see it, but you can send an FPV drone and you wouldn't be able to fly that line of sight. But because you're FPV, you can go through that door and down the hallway and out a window and then up and show the devastation. Yeah. So that that was a moment where I where, again, somebody sent me something online and they were just going, wow, look at this. And I was like, it made that connection in my head of, like, wow, that's a tool that we could use. So we've had remote ID introduced. Um, in the U.S., and we had some rules passed recently about flights during um, the night beyond visual line of sight and what have you. And so, I'm curious: in Canada, what are the rules for flying drones over urban areas, over people during the night, um, etc.? Is Canada stricter than the U.S.? Um, I get a feeling it is a little bit. And are small drones the way to go? We've discussed this earlier, but. Um, Inarguably, they pose much less risk to people on the ground just because they're lighter, more compact. Um, I especially like the cage that the DJI Mini and Mini 2, um, the cage that the propeller cage that fits on those two drones. So what are your thoughts, I guess, on all this? So for night flying in Canada, it's it's allowed. You need to have lights on your drone, but like the DJI products qualify for, for night flying. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as flying over people, uh, the the manufacturer of the drone has to approve that. So okay. um, there's there are no DJI products right now who meet that requirement. There is, however, companies like uh, they produce like a parachute that you can add to your drone. So uh, Indemnis Nexus is a is a product that we have for our Inspire 2s. And so an Inspire 2 with a parachute installed on it is rated in Canada for flight over people. So there's some exceptions to that. It doesn't mean crowds. Uh, it doesn't mean advertised events. So you can't show up at a sporting event and fly your drone over a massive crowd like that. Uh, but you could go to, say, uh, a park and fly over somebody walking their dog. Uh, you could get an urban shot and fly over people that are walking down, like pedestrians walking down the street. So there's there's some openness to, to doing that. So again, it's risk-based. If you mitigate that risk of being over top of bystanders with a parachute, then then you're allowed to, to do it. And I guess maybe, I don't, I'm not sure what the rules are elsewhere, but in Canada, you're allowed, we're allowed to fly over buildings and allowed to fly over cars. The, the risk is really for, for people, for pedestrians and bystanders. If, if they don't know that you're there, then you can't fly uh, you, you can't fly within five meters or so 30 feet of them. So also beyond visual line of sight, um, what are those rules? So that's something in flux right now. So right now, uh, I always have to be uh, line of sight. So uh, one thing that we do to, to mitigate that is because I'm working in TV and the shot is really important, I'm piloting head down in my monitor and I'm framing a shot. So I've got a headset and I've got a spotter and that spotter is walking around and they're helping me judge like trees and wires and buildings and watching for people underneath me. So if I'm doing like an urban shot, a lot of times we will, in our preparation, uh, I'll look at say like a Google map and I'll say, okay, what we want to shoot is this point here. And just off to the side, there's uh, a ball diamond or a soccer pitch. And if it's not going to be in use, then that's a great spot to fly from. We have lots of movement. Or if you can get over a river, then you can fly up and down the river and not have to worry about people or anything like that. Um, but if you have an Inspire 2 with a parachute, then you can get closer and you can, uh, there's, there's <laughs> less, uh, less things stopping or uh, influencing your flight. Now, I haven't reached the point in my drone career where I'm flying a mission that requires a parachute. In the U.S., you do have to write out your own proposal. And then, interestingly enough, that gets printed on the parachute, as of my understanding. Um, I have a friend who does a lot of this work in Chicago, and everything he wrote, they then print that on the parachute. Um, Does that happen in Canada, too, or is that a U.S. thing? I'm just very curious. Uh, how it works in Canada is the it's transport Canada has set a standard, a technical standard for flight over people. Uh, and it's up to the manufacturer to declare that they meet that standard. Mm-hmm. And if they declare that they meet that standard, then that goes on transport Canada's website. And then as a, as an operator, I can see that this product meets that standard and then I can use it. So I can I can go online and I can see that my drone does not meet that standard. So DJI mm-hmm. has not said to Transport Canada, our drone is safe for over people. 
DGI mm-hmm. has specifically said, we meet the category that says you have to stay always 30 feet from people. Mm-hmm. But uh, the parachute company has said, if you put our product on the Inspire 2, together with the technology of the drone, we assume the responsibility and we declare that that product is safe for flight over people. So as yep. a user, there's no risk on me. It's the manu- it's the two manufacturers that are stating mm-hmm. to Transport Canada that they meet that standard. So I'm okay. used as a pilot, I'm using a product now that meets the standard for flight over people. Okay. And, um, you know, one more follow-up and maybe this has not even been created yet, but what would be the ideal drone in your opinion for news gathering? Um, what features would it offer? It would be able to fly in, uh, 60 kilometer an hour winds when it's raining and when it's minus 35 degrees Celsius. And if it met all of those, then I almost wouldn't care what the sensor was like for the camera. But after that, you know, obviously I'd get picky and ask for a better and better camera all the time. But really it's it's weather that uh, is probably our biggest hurdle in in shooting something right now. So yeah. if it's windy out, we can't fly. But and and news doesn't like to wait. It's not like you can go to the event and say, you know, time out. Can we wait until this <laughs> evening at golden hour when the light is great and the wind has died down? Like, no, so we have to do it now. So uh, like really it, it would be uh, uh, weather is probably the, the, the biggest factor that uh, stops us from flying right now. It, it used to be regulations, but they've sort of smoothed that out and made our access to controlled airspace so much easier that we, you know, either, either we can get access right now or we can use a sub 250. But if I use a sub 250, then the wind can't be higher than about 30 kilometers an hour, and the temperature has to be above zero degrees Celsius. So there's a, a lot of days in the calendar year where that doesn't happen. It's quite unfortunate, right, that you have those uh, those small drones like the DJI Mini that, that are awesome from a regulatory perspective, but then when it comes to dealing with weather, they're, of course, a challenge, and uh, you can't always use them. Um, yeah. I was wondering, for, for people that are looking to start a career or, or grow their career in the drone industry, and, and as you being a chief uh, drone pilot yourself, what, what kind of recommendations would you have for somebody who pursues a career like that? Uh, go online and get trained. Uh, like go, don't, don't skip that part. Don't, uh, don't just get a drone and start flying, do a little bit of research. There's so much information online available. Um, start out by getting some, finding some sites, uh, um, that, that give you some information about the regulatory process. And then if you, if you feel like you're going to go forward with it, actually take an accredited training course. It's, no matter what it costs, it's so worth your time and investment. It'll come back to you tenfold. Awesome. I can echo that. <laughs> but I'm biased. Yeah. This is what we do in the US. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, we always have, we're getting towards the end of the show now. We always have a question for our guests, which is what is your favorite drone to fly? Right now, it's my FPV Nazgul 5 which is this one right here. So if we're just talking fun, it's definitely this one. But this is not what I'm using on a daily basis to get news shots because it can only fly in class G airspace and I have to stay a hundred feet away from people. So just for pure enjoyment, it goes super fast. It's acrobatic. uh, It's super fun. And um, I, I didn't know it when I got it, but it helps because it's so it's 
it's made of bricks, it seems like. Yeah, I've crashed it a whole bunch of times and it just keeps flying. And it has probably been the one thing that has improved my flying the most because I'm willing to take risks with it and push the envelope as a pilot and mm-hmm. and do things that I would never do with a DJI product, uh, especially like an Inspire 2 or something like that. And even flying FPV has made me a better DJI pilot because I'm I'm willing to get closer to things. I'm willing to trust uh, my screen a little bit more. Uh, I I've learned a different way of communicating with my observers because when you're FPV, you've got goggles on, you can't see anything except what is in the front uh, of the camera. So the dialogue and the communication that I have with my observer or observers has improved as well. Whereas before, I just wanted them to tell me if my drone was going to hit something. Now I'm interested also in what's going on around me. What's that noise that I hear coming up behind me that I have no idea is there. So it's been an unintended consequence of flying FPV has been improvement in flying uh, cinematic drones, I guess. Wow. I have to say, on a personal note, listening to you this entire interview, as someone who's been in flight training my whole life, um, I'm really impressed with what you guys are doing and the way that you're looking at your operation. It's it's very rare that I hear people talking about risk assessment, risk management, and looking at everything as you do as a risk reward. So it's very refreshing, and I I can't tell you how much I appreciate that from a, as a trainer uh, on 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 my professional life. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's something that uh, from the beginning. Uh, it was something that was important and it was something that was needed in the original permits to fly. And because it was needed originally at the beginning of drones in Canada, it sort of stayed in the process. Uh, and it's actually become uh, a module in the training that we give. And we talk about uh, human factors and risk assessments and explaining to people that you know what risk assessments are. You've already done them. It's not a scary word. Um and it's it's the way that we get things done safely, and it's just sort of stayed in the the, the CBC collective from the very beginning. Yeah, it's a culture. It's a, it's a safety yes. culture. I love it. Yep. Um, I was going to wrap up the show, but actually, I have one more question. I think for you, uh, Trevor, being an international organization as well, like what's your what's your opinion on having all these different set of rules in different countries? I mean, if you have people flying in the US or you have people flying in England or in Canada, and like the rules are different, I mean, how do you deal with that from a training uh, point of view? Uh, not easily. So I would say three, four years ago, the way we dealt with it was to prohibit it. So none of our international employees were flying drones. Uh, More recently, um, in London, England, one of our Canadian-approved pilots moved to the Bureau in London, England. And once they got there, they took the... Well, it's difficult because of Brexit. It's more complicated. But they took the the EU drone pilot Mm -hmm. license, passed that. Then Brexit happened. So they took the UK license so now they're a uk eu canadian approved pilot so that has for that specific pilot that has opened up a lot of area uh but we also have somebody in in moscow who's a a resident there so they have been up to date on the rules there uh but like in the united states because we know that there's the, the 107 waiver we 
at the moment, we're just none of our pilots fly in the US. We just hire a local company. If we need something, we're going to hire somebody locally who has the right training, who knows the area. It's their backyard. They know it better than we're going to know it. So that's the way we we do that in the US. But stuff comes up like uh, like recently the news in Haiti. So you go to Haiti and you send people, you get a call in the middle of the night, you're going to Haiti. Okay, can I take a drone? I don't know. Like, what are the rules in Haiti? So we're training our people so that they know the Canadian rules. So at least when you get to a place like Haiti, that maybe maybe it has some kind of rule, but it's hard to find and you're not sure. At, at least when you get there, you're, you're following the CBC operations manual. You're following Canadian laws, even if you're not in Canada. At, at least then you're you're going to be safe even if you're mm-hmm. even, even if there's no legal reason to do that uh there's a safety reason from our point of view to 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 operate that way yeah that's that's awesome information i mean i can imagine how challenging it must be because especially when you when you go to places like haiti the rules i don't even know if there are, if there are specific drone rules but likely they'll yeah. be very different i think uh, from here in the us and in uh, in canada um, I think we're pretty much coming to the end of our interview. Thank you so much for being on the show, Trev. It's, uh, it's awesome to hear your experience and kind of pick your brain on uh, all these different topics and how drones are being used in the news. I think it's, uh, it's really, really awesome. Uh, for all the people listening to our show, thank you so much for, for being our audience and listening to this. Uh, if you enjoyed the Pixel Drone Show, then please be sure to subscribe and like and share it with your friends. It helps us much more than, uh, than you might realize. Um, we air our episodes every Tuesday morning. So this show will go live on Tuesday and then next week we'll be back with another show. Thank you guys so much and we'll see you soon. Thanks everyone.